0: Oh, the pressure burns. I think and night she'll look more like her. Like she got it all figured out. And
1: because of the size of her thighs and the bow on her mouth. Welcome to No Makeup, a podcast sharing authentic stories of really cool women who sign up to honestly and bravely tell us their stories. We believe stories can do a lot. They inspire, they console, and they shape our understanding of the world. So welcome, as we interview women we admire and ask them to figuratively, and literally, if they want to, take off their makeup and tell stories from the heart. Our podcast is proudly recorded at Vermont Public Radio. Welcome
0: to No Makeup. I'm your host, Tiffany Bloomley, and I am joined in the VPR studio by Marissa Parisi, who is our producer, and by our guest, Alyssa Johnson-Kurtz. Allie Johnson-Kurtz is a 22-year-old who grew up in the small town of Worcester, Vermont. After her first year at Smith, Allie took three semesters off from school, during which time she worked for 350 Vermont, organized civil disobedience demonstrations against the Keystone Pipeline, and served as press secretary for Zephyr Teachout's 2014 gubernatorial bid in New York. Now, as a rising senior, Allie has continued her work as an activist with Rights and Democracy and Sustain U.S. and attended climate negotiations in Paris last spring. In short, she is incredibly busy. Thank you for making time to visit us at No Makeup.
2: Thanks for having me, Tish.
0: So... I- Your work and your academic interests have involved you in economic, political, and environmental activism. Is there an underlying thread that connects those interests?
2: I would say one of the threads that underlies all of my work is justice and also youth and working with young people. Uh, The civil disobedience that you mentioned against the Keystone XL pipeline, that was all young people. And it was the largest civil disobedience by young people in a generation to that point. Um, And so looking at how our generation, my generation, can help improve the world and build the world that we want to see underlies all of the work that I do.
0: Well, how is the activism of uh, your generation different than from the activism of prior generations?
2: One thing that I'm excited about that we have been focusing on recently is building community within our own activist groups. And this past May, uh, I brought together with uh, a bunch of folks who work with Sustain Us, Uh, there were 15 of us who had been in Paris together and at the United Nations climate negotiations. And we came together in, in Vermont to focus on building community because we had been through a lot in Paris, you know, sleeping only a few hours a night and working on a variety of issues there. And we wanted to come together and really focus on building our community. And that is something that. Uh, I'm excited about for our generation. It's definitely become a priority for us to develop our communication skills with each other and build the world that we want to see with each other, starting, starting with each other. So,
0: Well, say more about what you mean by building community. Mm-hmm. What, what is that vision then for mm-hmm. how you are with one another?
2: We got together in Vermont for two weeks and we were staying at uh, one of our friends, one of the folks who is works with Sustain Us, staying at her grandparents' house, um, just us. And we dove in and really got to learn about each other, learn our histories and all the different pieces of our identities and really tried to get to know each other at a deeper level than we were able to, just working together on issues. And uh, we brought in facilitators who helped us with nonviolent communication and thinking about how we address conflict within our group more effectively. And I think that that translates out into the work that we do. So we really wanted to focus on it, um, starting with our own group.
0: You took a leave from Smith as a sophomore to join Zephyr Teachout's campaign where you served as her press secretary at the ripe old age of what were you? 18? 19? Yeah. <laughs> so what did, what, what did you think you could learn that you couldn't learn in college?
2: Mm-hmm. And why did you think you could do this job? Well, I'll say that Zephyr, when she asked me to come on to their team, said made me she made me promise that I would go back and I would finish my degree. That was a condition of the job. But I I think that she did that because she knew that I might get a little bit hooked working in the political world. But I wanted to come help her, A, because she's family and I believe in the work that she's doing. Uh, but also, I think I wanted something that was faster paced after working uh, in Vermont with 350 Vermont on the state fossil fuel divestment campaign. Uh, and know, doing more local work. I was excited to move to New York and kind see the pace that um, some of the rest of the world works on. So, And I definitely got it. You know, I was working in the New York media cycle, and it was extremely fast. And, you know, we had a great group of people running that campaign and really shook things up in New York. So it was exciting. I think I saw when uh, she started running, I saw the potential there to really shift New York politics.
0: You clearly learned a lot of skills uh, on the campaign, skills you hadn't had a chance to develop yet. But I'm wondering what you learned about yourself.
2: I learned that I love working in small teams. And we had a fantastic team on Zephyr's campaign. Uh, Mike Boland was our campaign manager, and he is one of the most respectful, wonderful, brilliant people I've ever worked for, or um, known, really. And he made a point... I guess I should say he made a practice of uplifting the voices of the young women in the room, of the women of color in the room, and making sure that uh, folks were listening and he himself was listening. And I think it made a culture of, um, it it built a stronger culture for for the campaign to have him as the leadership, uh, making sure that everyone in the room was comfortable speaking up and voicing their ideas, so a lot of respect for him. Also, uh, the rest of the crew who was working for Zephyr, extremely talented people, um, and I loved working with them. So I think going forward, that is a big lesson that I'll take, is trying to find small groups of people who can do big things together.
0: Were you scared about taking on the kind of responsibility that a press sec- secretary has to shoulder during that kind of high-profile
2: campaign? It was big, and the first day that I started working there, I had come in and I had stayed overnight at Mike and his um, his partner Liz's house in upstate New York. And Liz worked as the finance director and scheduler, and so we had I'd stayed overnight at their house, and then the three of us had drove into the city, and I literally parked my car. With them and grabbed my suitcase. I brought one suitcase to New York, and we walked to the office. And I set down my suitcase, pulled out my computer, and started working. And so I just dove headfirst right in. Uh, and so I didn't even have time to think about what I was getting myself into. I just was right there and, you know, responding to emails and started organizing press conferences that week and just. Really took it all on without even thinking about expectations or uh, getting stressed out about all the work that was expected.
0: Well, what was the biggest challenge during that period of time?
2: I think dealing with the New York press corps. You know, very fast-paced, exciting, and uh, just curt. You know, and and making sure that. I was getting the stories that we wanted to have told, told, um, and not taking no for an answer from folks. Um, I remember one, one of my proudest moments of the campaign was um, Zephyr had held a press conference after Bill de Blasio had endorsed. Kathy Hochul, the uh, Governor Cuomo's lieutenant governor, he had already endorsed Cuomo, but he had then come out. We thought maybe he would endorse our lieutenant governor candidate because they run separately. And Tim Wu, but he had ended up endorsing Kathy Hochul, who was a bit of a Dino Democrat name only. And uh, so Zephyr had come out and said, you know, it's disappointing that Bill De Blasio has endorsed Kathy Hochul and not Tim Wu, and we feel like he's making a mistake. And the uh, New York Post, I believe it was, had come out with um, a headline on their blog that said, Z slams de Blasio. And that was not the narrative that we had wanted to push. You know, a lot of the de Blasio base was also our base. And so we didn't want to create any rifts between our campaigns and uh, our know, groups. And uh, so I, it was on me to call up that writer and say, you know, this is – I had – given him the recording of the press conference and spoken to him ahead of time and you know I had to call him up and just be like this is not what we talked about you know you have blown this out of proportion and really like lay down the law on that so that we could get it changed and was able to actually get the headline changed before it went to print uh, which was a really proud moment but it was also challenging to be on this phone the phone with this guy who's like I can't do anything about it and I have to be like you have to you know take care of this and not uh, spin our words in a way that makes us look bad intentionally, so.
0: Okay, so where did you get that chutzpah?
2: Maybe the Vermont community of women who's, you know, been in my life from the beginning, who have just always told me that I could.
0: So you've spent several years also as an environmental activist. Mm -hmm. And what drew you to the issue of climate change?
2: think that it was largely because it feels like that issue will shape my future in a very tangible way, uh, especially in Vermont, where we are so susceptible to the effects of climate change with you know, changing winters and you know, tropical storms like Irene and thinking about how vulnerable our state really is to these issues and also how vulnerable our way of life is. You know, I grew up maple sugaring. And to think that, you know, we've had issues with, you know, sugaring season. And to think that maybe I won't be able to pass that off or um, to my children or, you know, ice skating, sledding, these kinds of things that, like, we hold very dear to our culture, uh, that is really scary for me. To th- And so it feels like something that I – for cultural preservation, it feels very important, but also for our livelihoods and uh, – So I think that that combination has been really important for me in thinking about why that issue specifically. In the
0: context of your environmental work, uh, you attracted a fair amount of attention in Paris when you confronted Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin about his position on the Vermont gas pipeline. So can you describe what
2: happened? We found out... While I was in Paris, the Governor Shumlin had been invited to speak, basically as a local climate leader. And a lot of the Vermonters who were in Paris were, have been working on the Vermont Fracked Gas Pipeline campaign to stop the largest fossil fuel infrastructure project in fifty years from coming through our state. And Governor Shumlin has been supporting that project, and so we're like, what is going on? You know, why? is Governor Shumlin getting an international stage to speak when he's supporting fossil fuel build out at home? And so I called a meeting and brought together about 25 people. And uh, he was on a panel with folks from Washington State and California who also supported some fossil fuel infrastructure, but were coming to speak on this panel of local climate leaders. And so we brought together folks from those other states and a lot of Vermonters and got together and said, you know, what are we going to do about this? This is really unacceptable. And we decided to hold an interruption of that panel. And uh, I didn't actually know that I was going to be speaking in that room until that day. I had I usually take more of a backseat role during these things and help out on you know, press coverage and social media and email writing and you know, trying to get donations for legal fees, that kind of thing. And All of a sudden, they were like, why don't you speak? You know, why don't you get up? You've, you know, worked at the State House. You know Governor Shumlin. And so I said, okay, you know, it's not something that I normally would do. (laughs) And, you know, usually feel like I'm more useful elsewhere. But in that instance, it felt pretty powerful to be there and to do that. So uh, during while he was speaking, other folks had already interrupted um, the other speakers on the panel. And when he got up to speak... I stood up and I had prepared some remarks about his support for the pipeline and uh, just got up and started speaking to him directly about his support for the pipeline. And uh, he started speaking back to me and I just kind of continued to say what I was going to say. Um, and then he invited me up onto stage, I think facetiously, and I just walked right into the aisle and walked right up to the front of the room um, and you know, kind of got up. Near the podium and uh, started speaking to the room. So, uh, I also, that day, I had some security come and like try to pull me away and were like grabbing my arm pretty aggressively. And uh, the whole crowd was like, let her go, let her go. Um, And I just felt very like safe in that moment, like the people in the room were taking care of me. Um, The governor's
0: response to you. which attracted an awful lot of attention here in Vermont, um, was to many deeply disappointing in that he didn't address the issues that you raised, but he really focused on you. Come on, he said, I know your mom and dad. I know they taught you better manners than this. You're giving a beautiful speech, but you know you're missing classes back at Smith that you're going to get in trouble for.
2: how How did you feel about this? Well, what most people don't know is that Governor Shumlin and I had sat down the day before to have lunch, and we had talked for half an hour about my family and, you know, caught up a little bit and chatted about Vermont politics. And when that happened, you know, I really—when he started speaking back to me, I just kind of tuned it out and continued to say what I was going to say about the pipeline and uh, about what real local climate leadership looks like, so— And what do you think of what he said? Hmm. I almost don't want to answer the question because I think that the real issue is, you know, where does he stand on local climate leadership? Is he going to help Vermont build a renewable energy economy? Or is he going to continue to support a pipeline that puts us back 50 years um, into the fossil fuel era? So do you think the...
0: Strategy was an effective one. Did you accomplish what you hoped to?
2: I do. I absolutely do. From Paris, I was able to speak with reporters around the state, television reporters, and uh, we were on the front page of the Burlington Free Press and really helped draw the connection between Governor Shumlin and his support for the pipeline in a way that I don't think had really been made before. We had, um, in 2014, a group of us kind of Held an occupation of the governor's office, and I was one of 64 folks arrested in his office to draw attention to that connection. Uh, but this interruption in Paris, because it was at the United Nations, made a big splash. Um, so I think it did help kind of force that force that connection in a way that we hadn't been able to do before. And also, I just heard from so many people who are working on the fracked pipeline campaign here in Vermont, that it was an energizing moment for them, that it gave new life to the campaign, and that people were excited about what had happened and were excited about moving forward on next steps. And that, of all the responses, was the most powerful to me, was to hear from folks that it was going to kind of keep their, keep their energy going to, uh, to fight. So.
0: Do you have any role models? Who are they, and what's their appeal or their attraction?
2: I mentioned earlier the Vermont community of women that has supported me from the beginning, and as a little kid, going to like the Women Can Do conferences that Vermont Works for Women held, and seeing women doing non-traditional careers, and you know, just believing they could do whatever they wanted, and that really impacted me so you tiff and all the women who work for vermont works for women have been very influential for me in helping me understand that i can do anything that i want to do and that i will be supported in doing it
0: you know we we ask all of our guests this question the advice they give to A (laughs) 21-year-old, given what they know now, (laughs) which seems pretty hilarious, since you're 22. (laughs) Well, I ask, I think, two questions. Is there any advice that you'd give to a preteen, 12-year-old, who's on the verge of discovering who she is, Mm -hmm. and is there advice that you would give to women older than you? Mm.
2: For young women, I think the most important thing for me in my journey has been getting training, whether it was you know, learning skills with Women Can Do or um, getting training through 350.org on how to run campaigns and do that work. Those experiences where it's been multi-day um community building and skill building have helped me a lot to think about what I want to do and how to do it and feel confident um, in a community and in skills. So if, you know, for young women thinking about going into, you know, whatever career, how, how do you get the training that you need to be able to be successful in those careers? And how do you build the communities that will help support you in doing them. Uh, and for folks who are older, just, you know, mentorship and support of young people who are doing the work has been transformative for me, having access to those and, you know, reaching out to folks who might not have been as lucky as I was to just have that built in. You know, for me for, from a young age, I just had it built in with my mom's work. And, um You know there are a lot of kids who don't get that opportunity so thinking about how as older women you can reach out to mentor and support young folks who who might need it
0: it's been a real pleasure catching up with you Allie
1: thanks for joining us we hope you enjoyed this episode of the no makeup podcast Tiffany Bloomley is your host and I'm your producer Marissa Parisi Our theme music is written and performed by Giovanina Bucci, and we are proud and grateful to partner with Vermont Public Radio on the production of our podcast. You can hear previous episodes by looking us up on iTunes or SoundCloud or on our website, nomakeuppodcast.com. On our website, you will find cool links and more info about our guests. Sponsors for this episode include Elida Duncan, who did the awesome No Makeup logo, and our friends at Langrocks Berry & Wool. One last note, we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions on guests or topics, head on over to our contact page on our website, Facebook page, or Twitter feed and tell us what you think. Remember, No makeup, no mask. No makeup, no mask. Run is my skin. This beautiful vessel. I, I'm living in.